Hey everybody, welcome back. Happy Women's History Month. And today we're gonna talk about the history of undervaluing the work of black women and what we can do to ensure that black women get their money in the future. Pay me. Yes, okay. pay me in equity. I have my money, as Rihanna would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to get us started, I thought Faith and I are just going to share some facts about um, Black women and pay in equity and then give you a brief, maybe, economic history of Black women's work in this country. Um, on average, Black women in the U.S. are paid 39% less than white men and 21% less than white women. So th- I know probably everybody has seen that statistic that like women make like 71 72 cents for every dollar a white male makes but that's actually white women um black women it's closer to like 60 um percent 60 cents for every dollar um a white man makes um so what's interesting i found was that black women ask for promotions and raises at the same rates as white women but they often get worse results the pay um gap is largest for black women who have bachelor's and advanced degrees so faith you know there we're in that demographic yes um so compared with other women in the united states black women have always had the highest levels of labor market participation regardless of age marital status status or presence in the home um what i thought was interesting is that um black women um are have higher participation rates even over our lifetime even after we get married so like often white women will get married and they'll leave the labor force. Black women, statistics have shown, even when they're married and have children at home, they still work outside of the home. And I'm going to talk about Black women and economic history. So Black women's main jobs historically have been in low-wage agriculture and domestic service jobs. Um, Also, a lot of the jobs that black women have done, um, it's been black women being employed to do low wages jobs such as cooking, cleaning, caregiving, even though this work is associated with mothering more broadly. Yeah. Also, until the 1970s, employers' um, exclusion of black women from better paying higher jobs with mobility meant that they had a little choice but to perform domestic service work for white families. So really, black women didn't have a lot of options in terms of what they could do and were allowed to do at the time. And so a lot of that ended up being domestic service jobs. Black women continue to be overrepresented in service jobs. Nearly a third, which is 28% of black women, are employed in service jobs compared to just one-fifth of white women. And up until the 1960s, caseworkers excluded most poor black women from receiving cash assistance because they expected black women to be employed moms and not stay-at-home moms like white women. So today, 78% of black moms with children are employed compared to an average of 60 of white, Asian American, and Latinx moms. And lastly, the legacy of black women's employment and industries that lack worker protections has continued today since black women continue to be concentrated in low-paying, inflexible service occupations that lack employer-provided retirement plans, health insurance, paid sick leave, maternity leave, paid vacations, all of those things. And so over a third, which is 36% of black women workers, um, lack paid sick leave. And do you understand if you have children and you're a single mom how much you need paid sick leave. Even if it's not for yourself, usually it's for your child. And so for there to be 36% of black women that 
are working in the workforce and they lack paid sick leave, that's completely unacceptable. And we haven't even touched on the fact that minimum wage has been the same um, for a really long time. And the fact that black women are expected to um, work these low paying jobs and raise kids. And we all know that the economy has shifted and changed a lot. There's been a lot of increase in um, living and housing expenses, which is why we have a housing crisis right now. And so the expectation that a black woman is going to be able to take care of her kids and family um, for minimum wage just does not make any sense. So I think that's going to kind of lead into um, what Catherine's going to talk about next. Yeah. And I just want to say like two things to the point Faith is making. So paid sick leave and, you know, in the time of the coronavirus, like if you are having to stay home, like think about the privilege of being able to stay home and like work from home. If your kids get sick, even aside from coronavirus, like flu season, why those things are important. And I think also, too, studies have shown that the early months of children's lives are so critical, that bonding, that extra time that you get um, in the first three years of life in terms of long term child development. And just think about what this means, not only for like black women as mothers and what they're able to provide, but like long term, what you're thinking generationally for women who lack paid sick and maternity leave, like that crucial bonding time that they're not getting um, because they have to work or they work in jobs where they don't offer those benefits. Um, So there is a public policy component to this, even as we have this conversation about Black women being undervalued in the workforce. And the other thing is, I wanted to go back to something I said earlier and just give the actual facts. Um, And I'm going to do Texas and Georgia because I live in Texas and Faith lives in Georgia. But in Texas, Black women are actually paid 58 cents for every dollar a white non-Hispanic man makes. And Black women in Georgia are paid 62 cents for every dollar paid to a white non-Hispanic man. So those are our state facts. I encourage you to look up your state to see what the pay equity issue is um, specific to your state. So now that we've gotten the stats out of the way, I'm going to ask Faith, have you ever felt undervalued in a job? Yes, I definitely have. I've felt overlooked and underestimated. And I think, too, because I look young while I'm 29. I mean, most people think I'm like 18 or something like that. I've gotten asked that so many times. Some people have even said like 15 or 16. It's just beyond me at this point, which I don't mind looking young. But I have seen that as a young black woman, looking young and how that's affected me in the workplace hasn't always been positive. It's in some ways all on top of already being a black woman. And like I've really had to really prove myself. And so I think that in some of the jobs that I had over the years, um, I had to really show my value and show that I could really do the job and that I was going to be an asset to the company because sometimes people really didn't um, initially believe that until I was producing and I had um, results. And then it was kind of like, oh, wow, well, wait, wait, you're doing such a great job and we're so impressed. And it was this different, um, I would say, respect that I gained eventually, but it was something that I had to work hard and earn. And I would say that every job that I've had, I've had to do that. That hasn't come with, it hasn't, you know, magically just happened. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's like so interesting being a black woman in the workforce. Cause I mean, I definitely think have felt undervalued, but I also feel like we have to advocate for ourselves. I feel like in a way that is just so exhausting and sometimes feels like oppressive. And I think it's just, it's different. I mean, I've had like a lot of female bosses, um, in over my work career. And so 
so it's interesting in those instances, um, it has not been a black woman. And so I can't speak to that experience, but um, one white woman and then one Latina woman. And I just think it's been interesting to see how like, um, it's important to have these conversations like intersectionally because I definitely feel like in one situation, I feel like my boss was really like, like the way I took it is I felt like she was very threatened by me. And I think that um, that just is like really uncomfortable because I mean, I think it's like, obviously you recognize the value, right? Like you respect my experience and like what I'm bringing to the conversation. And, um, but also too, like in a way that's, it's like, it can feel um, threatening. Um, and then you feel like you're kind of like, for me, I felt like I was like in a double bind. So then if I tried to like back off and like not say as much, I would get like, Catherine, why aren't you participating? Or like, why aren't you saying anything? We know you have an opinion, like, please give it to us. And so it's like that thing that I think exists across just life um, as a black woman, as a person of color, um, this idea that you're both hyper invisible sometimes, but then also hyper visible. And it's like trying to like navigate, like trying to figure out that balance of like when to speak, when not to speak, and then just being really careful about like tone. Um, I almost never have like difficult conversations in email because, because I think the default is like, if you're a black woman to like, for it to be aggressive, Mm -hmm. quote unquote aggressive. Even if you're just like, you know, it's like you agonize. Like I've, you know, at email I've sent to my mom, my sister, my friends. And then it's just like, you know what? I'm not even going to see this email. Can, Can you come talk to me in my office? And even still just like being so precise and careful in words because I just, you just don't want, I think the default is anytime black women want to have a difficult conversation or hard conversation or challenge something it comes across as like the angry Mm, black woman and i think that probably where i've landed is that i want to be kind because you know i'm a christian and i love god and i want to represent him well jesus spoke with grace and truth and i feel like that angry black woman thing like that's your own internal issue that's not me and like and just being learning to be confident and secure and one how god created me to be And I don't always get it right. Like, I'm not going to say that I never am rude to people (laughs) or say the wrong thing. But I think, like, as I have gotten older and I've worked more, I feel like that sort of angry black woman thing. I'm, like, less inclined to, like, use that stereotype as an excuse not to speak up for myself. Yeah. And I feel like the other aspect and the other side of this is just how... I don't think people understand the mental loops and hoops that we go through as black women to in in the workplace. Yeah. Uh, I remember for me feeling like people had this expectation that either I was going to be the voice for all of the people like, yeah, she'll say it. But then at the same time, people also wanting you to be quiet as well. And so um, kind of like what you were saying, there's this unspoken expectation of you to speak out about something, but then to also be quiet. And so trying to hone your voice, especially when you're in predominantly white spaces, can be difficult because the very thing that people want from you, your assertiveness, all of these things can be the very thing that gets used against you in work situations. And Don't let white tears come in the mix. And then you as a black woman are looked at as the problem of like, what did you do? What did you say? And so I think there is some it's very nuanced. We haven't even mentioned just the hair, like the fact that when I was in predominantly white environments, like I would wait until like the end of the week or the weekend to change a hairstyle. Like I did not want to change my hairstyle during the middle of the week. Because I didn't want all the 50 million questions. I knew they would come, but 
but I would have to like time out my hairstyles and how I did certain things um, because there's just so many other factors that people don't consider that you deal with in, in the workplace, in the workspace as a black woman. And so it's not only is it about pay, not only is it about having your seat at the table and um, or bringing your folding chair to the table. It's also about the fact that you have to go through so many other cultural aspects, work life aspects um, on top of everything else. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Faith, can you just like explain a little bit the, the term or like what you mean by white tears? Like, what are you referring to? So, like, an example I would say is if, let's say, you have an issue with a coworker, your coworker happens to be um, a white person, and then they might feel upset about maybe the interaction, or maybe they're upset about something that was said, and then that leads to maybe crying to the boss about a situation or feeling like this wasn't ha- handled right. And even if you, as the person, are the one that had to deal with a microaggression or an offense or something, um, the other person can cry to the boss and save the situation, and you might be the one who's looked at to fix it, even though the other person probably needs to be the one to fix it because of the things that have been said. And so I think that in that same instance... I'm not even putting anything specific to it because it's happened before several times and not just to me, but to several other black women. And it's this expectation that not only do I have to endure microaggressions daily at work, but I might have to apologize to you should I choose to address them. And um, but the fact is, is white tears are powerful. Okay, and so I think that's like that's another component that black women have had to deal with, I would say. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have had that situation and Faith has gotten those text messages. So I definitely has that has happened, I think, also, too. And I think the idea is this idea that like in those situations that the feelings of white people are are almost always prioritized over the feelings of black people. And so this idea that like I have to apologize because you're upset or because you started crying, I would say for me, it's it's how those tears are weaponized to yes. avoid addressing the issue, to avoid you having to take responsibility for maybe your role. And even if it was unintentional, I mean, I think one of the things I like love about Be the Bridge and Tasha always talks about um, impact over intention. And the thing is, like, if someone brings something to you, like a microaggression or something in the workplace, don't hear it as you're a racist, you're a terrible person, I never want to talk to you again. It's like literally my assumption as a black person, I don't know about you, Faith, is like nine times out of 10 when I experience a microaggression is that you don't know you're doing it, right? Like, and, and maybe it's just my trying to always give people the benefit of the doubt. So my bringing it to your attention is never because I'm trying to say you're a terrible person. It is always because like, you need to stop doing this. <laughs> like I am uncomfortable. We spend eight hours a day here and I am uncomfortable and I don't feel like I should have to endure my own discomfort for the sake of your comfort. And so, you know, and, you know, and I, so I think being in predominantly white spaces and I think even in predominantly white Christian spaces, like as Christians, we should be going, you know, above and beyond not to show offense. And so, um, if someone brings something to your attention, like I understand that it's upsetting because everybody wants to do everything perfectly all the time, but the reality is that's not realistic and we're humans. And so we're all going to make mistakes. So like learning how to like receive constructive criticism, in a way that is not oppressive for the black person or woman of color trying to bring this issue to your attention. And then that doesn't place an additional burden on them. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to get into this more like later in the episode about like, how can people be allies? But I do think while we're talking about feeling undervalued in the workplace, it's important to like bring that because it does, it is like, it does feel dehumanizing to feel like I'm my only advocate 
you know, I'm, as Faith said, like doing all these mental things to like, there are so many microaggressions and racial things that come up in the workplace that you let go of. So like if a black person brings it to your attention, that should be like clue number one. This is really serious because they probably before they bring up the one, they're probably a hundred. They just let slide. Yes. And that's probably why we're not crying about it either. Right. Like this has happened so many other times before. And so if I get to the point where I'm crying about it, you know that I have sucked up a lot and now I'm just fed up. And so I think that's another, you know, like another insight and another perspective that sometimes we can hold our emotions in. And for me, it's not really just like the sense of like, oh, I have to be strong. But it's sometimes I'm just tired, like tired of crying, tired of being upset, just tired of being tired. And so um, I think like Catherine is saying, when you do get to the point to where somebody's mentioning to you like, hey, I need to talk to you about this, really choose to listen because it's a lot. It's really a lot. And this can go across. It's not just white people, right? This can go across all different ethnicities. When you say something to somebody and you mess up, just be able to apologize, listen, learn, and do better next time. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so let's keep it moving because I feel like we could park our car here for a little while because (laughs) we have so many stories about these things happening. But Catherine, I want to know this. Have you ever negotiated a raise? And if so, how did it go? And share some advice with everybody. Yes. So I have um, a few jobs ago, I worked at the local university um, and I really was not happy. Um, So when I was going through the job application process, like I really wanted the job and I thought it would be perfect for me, but I wasn't happy with the salary that was listed as what they were offering. Um, And so like I like prayed about it. I went to talk to my pastor (laughs) about it and he was like, no, you can ask for a raise, you know, whatever. And, And so I spent all this time like like I wrote out like all the reasons why like my experience um, I think was worth more than what the listed salary was. And obviously like in the first interview, I didn't go in and be like, okay, I want this job, but you have to pay me more. But by the time like we got down to the like last interview where it was like clear um, that I was going to be hired and he was just asking me um, some questions, I like nervously was like, okay, this is my chance. So I asked for a raise and, um, and I asked for like $10,000 more. Um, and we're, this is going to be a part of my advice or how to be an ally, but like, I think it's really important in this conversation to talk about like hard money and like hard facts, um, just because I think oftentimes women make less because we just don't ask and we don't know. So I'm going to say I asked for $10,000 more than what he, what was offered. Um, and he immediately said yes. And the crazy thing was he basically was like, oh yeah, the, I already had a pre-authorization from the university HR to pay up to $10,000 more without like having to go back to them to ask for more money. And he's like, and you know, and so he then was like, you know, if we wanted to go above that, if I wanted to ask for more than that, like he would have had to gone back to HR or whatever. But like, honestly, where I was at the time in my career and um, my living situation, like $10,000 more was perfectly adequate. And it was above and beyond what I had been making in the previous job. Um, But one of the things he said that has always stuck with me is he he was like an older black man and he was like in my 35 plus years of hiring people um white men always ask for more money like they never take the salary that's offered or listed um he then was like black men probably like 70 80 percent of the time ask for more money um and he said white women was about 50 50 but he said that the black woman almost never asked he's like i can count on one hand the number of times black women have i've been in the interview process and black women themselves have initiated the conversation to ask for more money 
Um, and so one of the things he told me was like, as a black woman, always ask, um, you know, and and one thing I would say for every because I, I think this is a common struggle across for women. Um, and I know I shared the statistics that black women do ask for raises at the same rate as white women. But I also think that white women generally we tend are tend to be less inclined to ask for more money. So I would my first piece of advice is always ask, but also to come prepared, because reality is you're not asking for a favor. You're asking for what you're worth like you know I would say like if you don't have the requisite experience like don't go in there and being like yeah I need to be making a hundred thousand dollars a year straight out straight out of college but I think you know I'm talking about situations where your resume your work what you bring to the organization or whatever is not being reflected in your salary um, or the salary that's being offered so ask and then be prepared to talk about how what you're bringing is worth more. And then the second thing I'll say is like, um, cause I've had this conversation and I've worked for nonprofits um, before whose budget budgets are a little bit more limited and maybe can't do what you can get in the private sector. Um, think about the things that you want that are not money related or salary related. So um, if they can't give you the salary you want, can you work from home? Can you get additional week of vacation? Can they send you to a certain number of professional development conferences a year? Um, think about creatively ways in which you can um, build your skill level, you know, have a great quality of life, um, maybe be more present for your family um, that don't involve just monetarily compensation. Because there are some jobs that you just really want, you feel called to to work for maybe a certain nonprofit and they just don't have the budget, um, but you really feel like you're called to work there. So maybe think creatively like, oh, well, can I work from home on Fridays? Like always have a backup option f other than money, I would say is my other piece of advice. What about you? Have you asked for a raise? How'd it go? <laughs> yes. A few years ago, I asked for a raise. I was doing contract work and um, I was a little bit flexible. I took a money I would say in the beginning that was lower just because I was in grad school at the time and like I just I needed to get through school so I started off lower than what was expected but then when I started to add money up I was kind of like whoa like I'm really not making much money and so I went to my boss at the time and I asked for a ten thousand dollar raise and I did my market research as what other people in the position that I was doing were making and then kind of just just pleaded my case in the sense that said what I've done, um, what I've brought to the organization, and um, my boss was really generous, and I got $20,000 um, of a raise. So um, that was really huge for me, and I felt really valued and empowered. I had talked to a friend who was in HR about salaries and stuff, and so she was really generous. She's white and was really generous in explaining to me what I should ask for, how I should ask for it, and why. And so she was able to help me get a grasp on what I was supposed to do and why it was important that I did it and having these conversations. And so I just really am so appreciative of that friendship and having that encouragement. I sent her my emails before I sent them. She helped me. And so I just think we have to do more of that in helping other people. So once I was able to do that, I felt very, very empowered as a woman, empowered as a black woman, that I can get paid what I'm worth, that I do work really hard, and that I do bring something super valuable to the table, and it's worth being paid for, you know? So I think that really gave me a boost. And so it 
also gave me a template for the future, right? So whether I'm doing contract work or I'm an employee somewhere, I will always list my accomplishments, say what I've been able to bring to the table, what I've done, how I've been able to benefit the organization, and request a raise. We have a um, economy and a country that is constantly increasing prices. And if you're not asking for a raise, you're going to be behind the curve and it's going to be hard for you to maintain your lifestyle, have money to save, different things like that. And especially when you don't have generational wealth or parents who can throw ten or $20,000 at you just because or just to help, like you have to be able to advocate for yourself in the workplace to start building the life that you want and need, especially if you've gone to school, gotten multiple degrees or you have student loans which those are things that I have. And so um, it's not just as easy as people think where you can just snap your fingers. Wow, all this stuff is done and it's paid for. Like, that's just not where a lot of people are when it comes to school, when it comes to finances. And so really advocating for yourself and your salary is super important so that you can pay those student loans back, so that you can make those strides. But if you're getting paid under your value, then it's not going to help you to make the strides that you need to make financially for the long haul. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, because I think the thing is, like, that's crazy. So um, you are setting yourself back because you, and you're you setting yourself back because in the next job you go to, they're going to ask what you made on your previous salary. I will say in Massachusetts, they the state has banned that because um, of the ways in which that contributes to pay inequity. So employers, if you're in Massachusetts, can't ask what your previous salary was. But oftentimes in other places, they ask what your previous salary is, and then they base whatever they're offering you on that. And I think you can decline to answer the question or there's like um, a way to say um, politely like, you know, well, I believe my requisite, you know, what I'm asking for here is not reflected in what I I made there. Um, And so I'd like to make this here because this job involves this many more responsibilities and I feel like I've done all this extra work. So I'm worth this exact amount of money. But I will say like not asking, it adds up over the long haul. And so you, you can't just be thinking about like, oh, okay, in my 20s, I'm okay. You know, the fact that this job only pays $30,000 a year. Um, and like, I'm not going to ask for a raise every year or any type of bonus. Um, because then by the time you're in your 30s, you're, you're, you're kind of behind, especially if you're in a situation where um, your future employers are really going to be looking at what previous salary was to determine what they offer you. Um, but yeah, I agree with everything Faith said. Yeah. So next, I want to talk about how can others be allies? I like to say co-conspirators or accomplice. Um, And I like that just because I want you to be in this fight with me, actively engaging in it. And so I don't want you to be um, behind me. I want you to really be next to me in this fight. And so I want you to have just as much skin in the game as I do in this work. And so um, so how can people be a co-conspirator or an accomplice for black women? And um, you mentioned, Catherine, that your boss was telling you more about the idea to always ask more. So what are some things that you've seen? Like, let's talk more about that. Yeah, I mean, so I'm going to talk about two sort of Hollywood examples first. So um, Viola Davis, who everybody knows and loves, is just like, you know, one of the best actresses of this generation. Um, 
And she did this talk where she talks about how people are always calling her the black Meryl Streep. Um, and she said that basically she insinuated that it like made her really mad because she's like Meryl Streep and I, we have the same background. We have the same career. You know, Viola Davis has won Oscars, has been Oscar nominated. She won an Emmy. And what was interesting in her Emmy speech, she was like the only difference between black women. The reason why you haven't seen more black women win. I think she won the Emmy for best actress in a drama t- television series. And she was just saying the lack of opportunity. But then she also was saying, like, if I'm the black Meryl Streep, pay me like you pay Meryl Streep. Like, don't try to shortchange me or um, pay me less. If you're saying my talent is there, then why am I not being paid the same level of these talented actresses? Um, And it brings me to, like, the story that Octavia Spencer tells is um, she was doing a movie with Jessica Chastain. At the time, Viola Davis had won an Oscar, had been nominated again, like, within two years, had been nominated by for a second Oscar. And, again, really talented Black actress. And Jessica Chastain, she basically was, like, they were having a conversation about pay inequality. Um, Jessica Chastain was like, she had no idea that Black women made so much less than white women actresses. And to me, at the time, the points in their career, obviously, Octavia Spencer was like older, but her resume and in terms of the awards that she had won um, was significantly more than what Jessica Chastain had done. But I will say this to Jessica Chastain's credit. She basically told Octavia Spencer, well, we're in this together. We're going to do an agreement that whatever they pay me, they have to pay for you. They have to pay you. We need to be paid the same, the same, which is honestly, Octavia probably should have been paid more. But, you know, we'll we'll start with the same because the same was five times more than Octavia Spencer had ever made in her career. Five times more. Like, that is like nuts to me. And so I think one hats off to Jessica Chastain for like listening and actually engaging and then being an accomplice. And I think that's the type of work it's going to take. Right. Like so talking about how much you make and then saying, well, I see what you're doing and I want to affirm the work you're doing. So I want to make sure we're being paid the same or, um, you know, or I want to make sure you're being paid more. And I think also, too, like we talked about this a little bit, but I think as single women, especially in Christian spaces. So I think this is a little bit different because if you're single, you don't get as much favored status as married people because the assumption is like, oh, you're married. You need more money to pay your kids or like or even the assumption that like if you're in a Christian environment, like if you're once you get married, you're going to quit and your husband's going to provide for you. But the reality is that's not everyone's financial situation. Like some people, both spouses need to work. But then beyond that, the assumption that because I'm single, I don't need to make as much money. I mean, so the idea that physically I go to an apartment where I live by myself or with a roommate means that I don't have people financially supporting on me. That is not true for people of color. Like the reality is I have so many friends that give their parents money because again, you know, we want our parents to retire. We don't want them to work as much. So then, you know, I have so many friends that give money every month to their parents um, who are retiring or retirement age so their parents can pay light bills and get medicine and all those things. Um, we have nieces and nephews that want to go to college or want to do sports activities or whatever, and our siblings can't afford <laughs> those things. So this idea that, oh, you're a single person, you don't have other people depending on you is not true. But then beyond that, like, even if you don't have other people depending on you and you aren't giving money to family members, Faith mentioned student loans. Like, I have student loans. Like, and so this idea that, like, oh, I don't need as much money because I'm single, I think is it's a myth. Another way is a myth. And so, I a, a way to be an ally would be like not to be like, oh, you're single, so you don't need as much money. Um, and then I would say, you know, talk about how much money you make. I said that invite black women to speak and share their expertise and then pay them their rate. This is like one of my pet peeves as someone who's organized conferences. One, black people with expertise 
ask for more money. It's crazy how much some of these white speakers with like half the expertise are getting paid to come speak at these conferences and events. But then also too, don't try to get a discount and then also don't offer a discount. Yes. <laughs> like if you state your rate is $6,000, they need to pay you $6,000. And I understand the reality of you're happy to be there and some money is better than no money. But I also think, I think people that organize conferences um, I don't think it's just that black women or women of color who have written books, who have expertise, who've gone to school, who've done extra study or work to speak on whatever topic they're speaking on are being paid so much. I mean, the disparity, I mean, it was cr- trying to find speakers for conferences. It was crazy, the differences that I was seeing. And some of it was justified based on experience, how many books you had sold, where else you've appeared. But some of it was like, no, this is this is not right. You need to be asking for more money. And so I would say, rather than always putting the onus on people to advocate for themselves, a good way to be a co-conspirator or accomplice is to offer. Um, I definitely have had experiences where I've been asked to speak and had (laughs) the lady who you know, was in charge of organizing saying like, no, I know it's really important to play black women. So if the church had said no, that they couldn't pay you this, I was going to pay you out of my own pocket. That's the type of like allyship I'm interested yes. in. Yes. So, um, so Faith, why don't you ask what you would ask of co-conspirators? Um, don't just ask us for advice, hire us, pay us and um, support and promote our businesses, our writing, our podcast. I just, I have to be honest and say that I have seen over, hmm, let me just say the last um, five years, how white women that are friends that have been, let's say this in the Christian space, that are friends that have been in ministry together, how they have supported each other's businesses and podcasts and help each other make millions of dollars. Um, And it is nuts. Like, when I tell you I have seen the evolution of that over the last five years, I've kind of been like, dang, like, it has not been like that for black women who have been in the same spaces and have accomplished the same, if not more. And so if we're really talking about we want to be together and push forward in this work, you have to ask yourself, how many women, women of color, have I truly come alongside, promoted their work, paid them for their work, invited them to come speak at my events? And this is going to sound terrible, but I'm not saying you're top five, okay? Like people outside of the same people you always hire or you always have come and speak, Get people outside of those boxes and outside of those circles. Really get to know other people. You might be surprised. There's more than five of us out there that are speaking and doing this work. There's more. There's a lot of us. There's a lot of us writing. There's a lot of us speaking. There's a lot of people with a lot of expertise doing great work out there. And I think that we have to do a better job at supporting women doing this work. And so... I just think the other thing that I would say that Catherine said, if you are truly a a friend, if you're going to be a co-conspirator in this and want to come alongside of us, I've seen so many black women struggle with, and I've struggled with this myself, like understanding and knowing how much you should really charge people for something and then finding out that maybe like white women are charging like two and three times more. And I'm like, how? 
wow, like what? Like, that's so crazy. And so if you don't have people that are coming alongside you and that are talking about things vulnerably, really saying, yo, this is how much I made when I did X, Y, and Z. Or if you just really don't feel comfortable and you want to be like, oh, this is a roundabout, say that. But I'm going to tell you that us women of color are having the conversations. We're saying the numbers. We're saying the facts. We're comparing notes because we have to know what each other are getting paid. We have to know how to support one another. We have to know what we need to be asking for. And if nobody is saying it, how are we ever going to know if we're being shortchanged? And so I think that it's really important to start having these conversations and for white women to be a part of actually participating in it for it to not just be this a really elusive conversation, right? Really taking it to the next place. And so my main thing is support, support black women. There's black women out here, other women of color doing amazing things, amazing work. And um, it takes more than just a pat on the back or a shout out on social media. Sometimes it, it really, it's active, right? Invite, like Catherine's saying, like, if you're organizing an event, invite people to speak there and people with expertise and, and be willing to pay them and not just say, hey, I'm going to get your plane ticket in your hotel. Like, nah, really put like action behind it. I think that that's really important. And so so I'm going to say to Catherine, the next thing, what would you say? Why is pay equity important? And is it wrong to ask for more money? Yeah. So I'm going to say, um, you know, from a faith perspective with Christians, right? Like we don't want to do anything out of selfish ambition, but you know, to something I said earlier and Faith said earlier, um, when I looked up the numbers, this pay inequity or this gap in is costing us almost a million dollars over our career. Um, that is down payments on homes. It's money for college tuition. It's inheritances. It's small business startup money. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, I think when black women get money, we often do not spend it on ourselves. We invest in our communities. Um, and so to me, it's not even to me so much of like a selfish ambition or like, I want to be paid my worth, which I do want to be paid my worth. And, and, but I also don't want um, my value and who I am to be tied up to solely who I do, but I do care about the flourishing of my community, right? And I do want to be able to su support my local Black-owned businesses or businesses owned by people of color. Um, I do want, when I have children, for them to be able to go to college and not have student loans because I know how oppressive that is. Um, and so I would say I don't think it's wrong to ask for more money because I think research has shown that, you know, when our money goes into our communities and our flourishing is for the flourishing of the whole. Um, I'll also say just generally black families are more reliant on women's incomes than other families. About 80% of black mothers are the breadwinners in their family. So again, don't think of it as being like greedy or you're hoarding, like really think about it as the flourishing of the whole. I think of flourishing of your family um, and what it's costing kind of like long term. And, you know, the black white income, you know, wealth gap and this idea that like we're never going to make that up if we continue to like undervalue ourselves and are just kind of take whatever people offer us. So that's why I would say um, it's important and why we shouldn't don't feel bad about asking for more money or more paid time off or paid sick leave or vacation days or whatever it is, because it's not really solely about you and your flourishing. Yeah. And I feel like black women, we contribute so much to the home and to the family. And even if you are single, like Catherine was saying, a lot of us take care of our family. A lot of us contribute. A lot of us um, really have a part in helping with our, um, you know, our nieces, our nephews. Um, you know, even my brother. Like, there was a time when my brother was off work, 
and he couldn't um, find a job at the time. And um, I gave him my car. We all gave him money to get him through this rough patch. Like it's very communal and how we um, come alongside and wrap our arms around each other. And so I'm not just taking care of myself. I'm also taking care of my family too. And so I think that's an aspect that people don't always recognize and understand. And sometimes there's other, you know, things that we have to take care of, you know? So I think what Black women offer and provide, like Catherine was saying, 80% of Black mothers being the breadwinners in their family, there's a lot of responsibility that falls on Black women's shoulders. And I would say that we are worth it. We're worth um, what we bring to the table. We're worth being paid for that. We're worth knowing what we should be paid for that, right? I feel like knowledge is power. And so sometimes that's a hindrance to the Black community is sometimes that knowledge hasn't been prevalent. And so people haven't known, you know, you're thinking, oh, wow, I'm getting 50. I feel really excited about that. But really, everybody else in the position that you have is getting 65. And you need to not think, wow, because it's more than I've ever been paid. I should just stop there and be excited about it. No, ask more questions. And I think that sometimes um, people don't know to do that. And it's important to get to that next step. And so I would just say the resilience and the persistence that Black women have is um, really incredible. And I feel like it's important as you are thinking and reflecting, okay, what can I do? How can I ask for a raise? Document what you've been doing. Document everything. Document what you've contributed to the company. Yeah. And I was going to say with Faith, I just want to interject and say this. With your documentation on projects or when you're working in a group, take credit for what you did. Because oftentimes, this is true across women. And like I've read a lot um, on this area. Women are less willing to take credit for their Mm. work. And so, and like oftentimes you're working in a group and, you know, but you know the one thing that you were responsible for. And that is false humility. And fake humility guys, is not, it's not good. It's like pride, right? Like if you did this work, make sure your boss knows you did this work. Because when it comes time to do employment reviews or raises or whatever, you could have a list of like, oh, I did X, Y, and Z. But if you never said it publicly, your boss is like, oh, I didn't know you did all that. Um, and it just causes it to like slip their mind. So like as much as possible, take credit for the work yeah, that you've done. Yeah, absolutely. Take credit for it. Take up space. Don't be afraid to do that. And never settle for the first offer that you're given for a job. You can definitely go back and you can ask for more. I know it can be hard and uncomfortable because we're talking about money here and everybody's like, oh my God, it's mortifying. I just need money in general. Um, But really, add it up, right? So let's say they give you an offer and you want $3,000 more. Ask for it. And if you think about it, if you get that raise, you get that $3,000 more with that offer and you're like, wow, like I'm so glad I you know, asked for $3,000 more add up what that is a month to you, what kind of bills that's helping to cover for you, different things like that. It's really important to start calculating those numbers and realizing why it's important that you're asking. So that's what I would say for that. And I just, as just add like as a close, I think also too, like, yes, I want black women and women of color to advocate for themselves. But I think going back to one of the statistics I shared in the beginning that, you know, black women are asking for raises at the same rates, but they're having worse results. So I also want to just kind of toss, toss it back and like re-emphasize if you're in a position to hire people to determine people's salaries what an ally or an accomplice would do is not wait for someone to advocate for themselves right like you be their advocate and step in and say hey you know she's doing the same amount of work as billy or whatever
whatever, and Billy is making fifteen thousand dollars more. Um, I think that we need to pay her commiserate. Like people need to be paid the same or whatever. You know, for the takeaway from this conversation is, um, you know, black women. Yes, like we need to know our worth and we need to be comfortable like speaking up for ourselves and like not be trapped in this like angry black woman, strong black woman. We need to not be trapped by those stereotypes. But I also would just say. Um, that I hope the takeaway for this conversation is as a woman of color, you have the right to expect other people to stand up for you and that you do not have to be the only one standing up for yourself. Like you are a human being and you're worth that. (laughs) You're worth having people say, I see you, I see what you're doing and I want to make sure I'm a part of you feeling valued here as part of this team. People should want to pay you. And I think that that's important what you're saying, Catherine, that people should also say, hey, if I'm in charge of the hiring here, I want to make sure I'm valuing you by what I'm paying you. For me, as somebody who is overstaffed, paying people what they're worth is really important to me. And it's a nonprofit, so it's not like, wow, we're (laughs) balling. But I do look at people and what they're doing and do my best to make sure that people are valued and appreciated with what they're paid. And I think that's just so important to do to the best of your ability. And so even if you're not able to do a lot, do some. Show appreciation for people, show up for people, and really respect them and what they're doing and what they're bringing to your organization. So that's that. I really feel like we will probably have to do a part two of this because there's so much more we could have said. But pay me an equity, y'all. Pay me an equity. Yes. Hey everybody, this is Faith, and I work for Be The Bridge. Be The Bridge is a nonprofit that is committed to promoting racial healing, equity, and racial reconciliation. And we are super excited because this year, we are opening ourselves up to even more trainings. We do trainings and consultations with churches, organizations. We've done um, small groups, big groups. And so we really want to come to you and serve you and your community well. So if you need a diversity audit, if you need some cultural competency training, we are the organization for you and we want to come alongside you and help make that happen. If you want to learn more about how to work with Be The Bridge and to get us to come and train your organization, visit bethebridge.com or you can email booking at beabridgebuilder.com. Thanks so much. Okay, so now it is time for our favorite segment and yours, Go Off Sis, okay? So this is where we talk to you about things that we love and things that are just a mess. So we talk about all kind of different things. And so, Catherine, I'm going to let you kick it off. What is going on that you're loving and that's a mess right now? So um, I'm going to do two things I'm loving. So Dixie Chicks released their first single, Gaslighter. It's their first new music in like over a decade. They're going to have an album come out like early summer I think May um, and I'm so excited Gaslighter is awesome if you haven't heard it listen to it the girls are back and we're okay, wait, thrilled wait, wait. I have a question um, didn't the Dixie Kit Chicks Dixie Chicks get cancelled <laughs> You see, this is what happens. When you're a good woman, they try to keep, they, they try 
They try. And, you know, you can't keep a good women down. And I'm thrilled they'll be back. Um, yeah, I think a few years ago. If you haven't seen that documentary, it's called Shut Up and Sing. The Dixie Chicks spoke out against the war in Iraq and there was a huge backlash in country music. Um, but I think it changed their sound. And um, the album that came out right after that, Taking the Long Way Around, it won a bunch of Grammys. And then they kind of took a hiatus for like family reasons. But the girls are back, Gaslighter, singing about your favorite things about men who gaslight women and why they're terrible um (laughs) so i'm thrilled you know as a lover of country music and the lover just of dixie chicks generally it's gonna be awesome um my other thing is megan and harry they're in london right now for their last official appearances as working members of the royal family and girl when i tell you they look so happy the flourishing the color coordinated outfits megan is like (laughs) jokes on you um and i for one i mean i just can't like there's a picture of them um they were going to some event and it's like raining and she's in this gorgeous blue dress and he's in a matching like blue suit and paparazzi caught a picture of them like looking at each other and they're like smiling and laughing and they just look so happy and i think the thing that i'll say briefly about this is like you know the british monarchy and the british people had an opportunity to change the way that they've always done things right like megan is disrupting just that whole situation and the fact that she's biracial she's american she was an actress whatever um and rather than make space for that and the change of that they chose not to and you know harry and megan together made a decision because I think the narrative that she is making him do something he doesn't want to do is racist, frankly, and a little sexist. Um, But I will say that, you know, as someone who is conscious of how Americans can be very individualistic and how that's not always a good thing, I think that institutions should also be asking themselves, how are we making space and how are we accommodating people who are who are different like she had different needs and responsibilities and I just think that and even for Harry I see like you know he talked a lot about how the death of his mother affected him and so this expectation that he's going to engage the press the same way that everybody else has engaged the press just because this is the way this institution has always worked it really does a disservice to individuals so I will say in this situation I'm very happy that they're flourishing and happy and made the decision that's best for their family and I look forward to still seeing them on red carpets and serving community and doing nonprofit work and I I'm I'm really happy and I feel like I'm blessed um I will say my mess thing is going back to the coronavirus so obviously I live here in Austin um it was announced I think a couple days ago that they're canceling South by Southwest which is a huge big deal movie music festival in Austin over two weeks it's going to be a huge economic hit I think something like 400 million dollars will be lost but there's been a lot of conversation about how this cancellation is affecting people in the service industry and hospitality industry in Austin and there are all these kind of things that have popped up like um, charity events and ways to like pay to try to make up the money that will be lost Um, but I hope that larger rather than outside of this like event which is huge and it's going to have this huge impact we need to have a conversation about the affordability crisis in this city and other cities um, about where people don't have access to paid sick leave. The fact that like, you know, I saw these stories where they're interviewing bartenders and they're like, oh, what I make in Southwest, South by Southwest covers my rent for a year. So I'm really worried about how I'm going to make up that money. And it's like, that seems problematic to me that like, it's so unaffordable in the city that like regularly what you make as a working person cannot cover your rent. Um, And so the coronavirus is a mess. 
Um, the impact on people who are kind of already at the margins of society um, is a mess. But I hope for us, it's a larger conversation that we talk seriously about affordability, about paid sick leave, about health insurance, because so many people are one paycheck away or one cancel event away from homelessness and hunger. And I just think that's a mess. Yeah, that is a mess. And mine is similar. So I'm going to start off with my thing that's a mess. I'm just going to say how um, the press has really handled the corona virus and talking about it has been an absolute mess. It's, I feel like, heightened the fears of people and more people have been listening to the press more than organizations like the World Health Organization um, and the CDC. And I just think that it's really important. And this is the age, right, of social media where news travels fast. We have Twitter, all these things. But it's really important to still put the voices that are the experts in this at the forefront of these conversations. Um, I do think that it's great we have free press and we have those opportunities to share. But I do think that it's important to how we communicate news like this because this has been going on in Asia for a little while now but it's not until it hits the U.S. that it like has been setting off this overwhelming panic and so I just think it's really important that we that that's acknowledged essentially is what I'm trying to say and so The other thing that I wanted to also talk about is the racism many Asian Americans are facing right now because of all of this and how that's been affecting um, restaurants and just businesses because of that. If you are being racist towards Asian people, you need to stop. It's first of all, it's terrible. Second of all, it's really affecting people's lives and their livelihoods. And it's just rude. Like, it's just completely rude. So, yeah, I just really feel like that needs to stop. And people, wash your hands, okay? As a frequent traveler, wash your hands, wipe down your seat, don't buy up all the masks, don't buy up all the sanitization um, items that people need that are, like, actually working in the field. Just do your best to maintain your, you know, cleanliness and all yeah don't shake hands like you know do a little elbow bump or like a or just wave or just wave no need to like we can forego hugging for a little while yeah i think yeah the racism towards asian americans has just been really disheartening and i think this has been across other ethnic groups i saw a video of like an older black man like shouting at some like asian person on the bus for like i saw that too coughing or something like that and that's terrible. Inexcusable. Like, and your race has nothing to do with your susceptibility to the virus or if you're carrying the virus. And so I would just say, like, yeah, stop being racist. I mean, support, you know, your local, like, Chinatown, Chinese restaurants, you know, Japanese, like, whatever. Um, they're taking, as Faith said, a huge economic hit because people are misinformed and think that somehow going to have pad thai makes you more at risk for coronavirus. And it doesn't. And you're hurting small business owners and you're being racist and you're being racist so please stop (laughs) yeah basically just stop wash your hands okay um so the one thing that i'm loving right now is so i watched the love is blind reunion and my really like quick hot takes are that amber came for jessica she basically pulled her ponytail i mean not literally but with words she surely did um Jessica seems completely mortified. She talks about how she did not like the person that she saw on the show. And really, she basically, like, moved to Chicago for six months to, like, get her life together. I don't know. Maybe she did some soul-searching. But um, 
she seems pretty remorseful um, and definitely terrified that she acted the way that she did. And she did acknowledge that she was drinking too much. I mean, I, maybe that was an eye-opening moment that she was kind of an alcoholic. I don't know. But um, I think that she she's rethinking some things in her life. And now yeah. she's in L.A. So um, I'm glad for her that she's maybe making some more positive um you know, life choices. Um, I feel like even though, okay, so Kelly talked on the show a little bit, and I kind of feel like she has regrets. Now, she acted like she didn't, and she and Kenny did say in a different interview that they had talked before. They knew they weren't going to get married. They had, you know, kind of basically come to an agreement. They just wanted to see the experiment through because that's what they signed up for. Yada, yada, yada. Well, I believe that. I don't believe it. I kind of am like, I feel like this is a story y'all are making up. Because first of all, Kenny, if you knew, why did you react so strongly? Yes. Um, If you knew she was going to say no and you'd had all these talks, why were you so mad? To me, you wouldn't have been that mad had you have known that y'all were both going to get up there and say no. They're saying they both knew no. But I, I'm not convinced. I think they're kind of protecting each other. Um. Kenny didn't have much to say. He did say that he has a girlfriend and he's super happy now. So I feel like he's just kind of like, I want to get this whole show and all this stuff, like all this press moved on and and over with. I can have my life back. But um, Kelly definitely seemed remorseful in the sense that she mentioned that she's always like friend zoning guys and friend zoning good guys. And those are probably the guys she should marry. So I think she just has relationship problems kind of. And um, So I think that's her problem. No, I think she definitely has regrets. I don't believe that. I do. Maybe that's something that they're saying now. Because one, I think, right. Like, he got so angry. So angry. When she said no. But then I thought it was interesting at the reunion is she said, I was hoping that we could still date after that and still get to know each other. But obviously that didn't happen. So that to me says, if you were like on one accord about her saying no, then one, he wouldn't have reacted so strongly. But two, he would have dated her afterwards. And it seems like that is not. not at all that is not at all what happened and that you know i'm happy for him because he seemed happy and like i think kelly really played herself she messed um, up because he cut off all contact with her because Ke- kenny was a good he was a as good her mom said, man as her mom said i love this guy i mean he was a good man he was attractive yeah i don't she played herself and but she I'm, messed up but i'm glad that to your point that she realizes that she made a mistake and maybe this too will be an opportunity for self-reflection for her and making better relationship decisions yeah so then here we go carlton now he messed up too calling diamond out of her name being all crazy crying and and i like i have said this before i really feel like diamond was going to be reasonable and just wanted to have a conversation with him about what his gender fluidity meant right so she didn't know and she just wanted information and so then he goes he shuts down calls her out of her name they have the big fight we all know she sang Beyonce's lyrics and walked out the door or walked out of the pool area. And so I don't know how I felt, though, when he apologized and he gave Diamond the ring back with like, hey, I don't really have any expectation. I don't know what's going to happen. But he put the ring back on her finger and she was kind of like, uh, okay. Like that was kind of a weird moment. But I do need to now scour the Internet to see what has happened since then. 
He wants her back. She did not say she wanted him back, but she said she forgave him. He still really is trying to work it out. I have no idea if she even wants to work it out with him. But I thought she said, maybe I saw this in an interview or I don't remember if I saw it in the reunion, but she saw how he reacted to her trying to bring an issue to his attention as a red flag that he got that angry. Yeah, she said that. Yeah, like he like flipped the switch so fast. So she kind of was like, saw this as like a bigger issue. And I think Carlton is another one that maybe needs to do some like self-reflection or some sessions with a counselor because that whole situation got out of control because I think he was expecting her to reject him. And so he, and he said this, he came from a defensive place. And so, you know, now watching it back, he can see that she genuinely was just trying to ask questions like that she hadn't made up her mind one way or the other. Um, And I think I can understand his sort of, based on his experiences with his sexuality, like maybe where that was coming from. But I think, you know, I saw something where he posted online where he was like upset that nobody was defending him. And I was like, but your behavior was indefensible. Like there's nothing, like like, there's nothing, you know, I'm sure you're a perfectly lovely guy in um, regular circumstances, but you call this woman out her name, you start talking about her appearance you were demeaning i mean that is misogyny like misogynoir which is you know and so even if i'm like sympathetic to understanding like okay you had some internal issues going on and and you projected onto diamond you still had internal issues (laughs) yes yes (laughs) and i get why that's a red flag for her oh i totally oh i totally because like if that's how you react yeah i i totally get why that's a red flag i mean it would be a red flag for me because it'd be like well what about when stuff comes up with our finances or whatever my ex expectation would be that you would just flip a switch yeah i i agree i i understand mm. why she's like yeah no you you played yourself so to wrap this up damien and g are still together they're dating taking it slow they're clearly in love um and they did like public apologies to each other which was that was sweet um and cute and i feel like they probably like had a different type of relationship like off camera and I think that when you have cameras following you in a relationship it's just hard in general so um I'm not surprised that they're back together um no I'm not either I think that yeah I'm not surprised and I'm not surprised that Amber and Burnett are still together because I think they like are the same version of crazy and that sounds so terrible but I feel like I feel like they just kind of like fit each other in that way so we'll see how long they last but of course we love the darlings Cameron and Lauren the world has embraced them and loves them and loves their love and Lauren's just out there inspiring girls all around the world just yes and to me it's not even just about Cameron being a white guy it's the fact that she had her own thing going and her own life and she was nervous and scared but she welcomed love into her life and I am so inspired by that as a working woman as a single career woman just seeing another woman let herself be vulnerable, let herself fall in love, let herself be happy and take the leap and the risk. It's just inspiring. Yeah, I would say, uh, yeah. And I like just love even their body language, the whole reunion, like that they were like wrapped up in each other. Like they just, uh, they are so, they, yeah, they're so inspiring. I think even just to all the things you said, I think the way Cameron like clearly like loves her and is like, I won the lottery <laughs> with this woman. And so I just yes. think, yeah. And that he was so open. Cause I think oftentimes guys are not open about their feelings that Cameron was like, I love you. I want to marry you. I'm in this. Let's have, you know, like what I like is she never didn't know where she stood with him that he was always clear and upfront and I will say to wrap this up my other thing that was a mess but I felt like I knew you were going to talk about this Nick and Vanessa Lachey are not good hosts that reunion I felt was 
so awkward. And I know maybe they didn't come up with the questions or the order in which the questions were asked. But, like, at certain points, they were just making statements. And it was, like, very, I I, I don't know. And maybe Netflix was caught flat-footed. They didn't expect the show to be this popular, and so they hadn't planned for a reunion. But I'm just going to say a friend of ours um, suggested that Cameron and Lauren should host season two. And I am totally here for that because the Lachey's, I love I love you, but it's a no for me, dog. (laughs) Yeah, I think Cameron and Lauren should definitely take over as hosts for the show. Number one, they have participated in it. But number two, they just have really great chemistry on camera and they both do well on camera. So I think that they should be the ones to kind of facilitate those conversations because the reunion was a bit awkward. And when it was over, I was kind of like, oh, wow, like this is it. Like that's okay. (laughs) All right. Well, I guess maybe if there's a season two, we'll see that. And um, it's been great. So, um, so I would just say that we just are putting in our petition for now Cameron for and Lauren. Cameron and Lauren to be the host, you know? So thank you all for listening with us. This has been a really fun yeah. episode. I think one of my favorites so far. And I hope that you all learned something new and that you apply it to your life. And DM us. Let us know if you end up asking for a raise or getting paid more, like whatever. Or helping like, someone get paid more. We'd love to hear it. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.